Good morning. Thank you. Children, off you go. Children are dismissed. Uh, what a joy it is. We had a good representation, didn't we, this morning of the Lord's grace to us and His past grace and His future grace. His past grace to us and the Nolly family, so Dolo and Madeline, seated right in front of me. Uh, we love you. We miss you. So you're a reminder of God's past grace to us and your continued investment in the life of this church. Uh, and we're reminded of God's future grace to us in Cal, being baptized this morning, and how he is actively working uh, in the midst of our church. Um, so what a good thing to be reminded of these things, isn't it? That God is at work in the life of this congregation, and he's doing things to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so we have so much to be thankful about, and we're going to talk about that this morning. And so what a wonderfully, incredibly awkward transition to grumbling and complaining. <laughs> That's what we have in our text this morning. Uh, so uh, I actually think it is actually a really good transition because it's going to speak a lot into where grumbling and complaining come from. And so let me pray for us just briefly, and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us, that you could be understood, and by your spirit can be obeyed. What a glorious thing the gospel is. Thank you for the reminder of it already this morning. And so, God, train us up to be those that are full of your grace and not full of grumbling. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's 9.45 a.m. You've got an appointment at 10.30 a.m. on Capitol Hill. You're a little late, but you have enough time. You run down to the metro. You're running down the tunnel. You bolt through the tunnel. And you get through, and you just as you pay your fare and you go in, you see the train leaves. No worries, though. The next one's going to come in three or four minutes. And you look down, and just as you stand there, you look up at the sign, and what does it say? Delayed, 15, 20 minutes. What do you begin to do? Sing hymns. Probably not. That would be a good thing to do. Parents, you come home. It's been a long day. You walk in the door, your kids need showers, they need to brush their teeth. You tell them to go get a shower or get a bath, brush their teeth. You begin to unpack for the day, you're tired. And five minutes go by, you go back and you look in the shower, you look in the bath, the kids are not there. Uh, what are they doing? You look in the room and there they are playing. And you begin to say to them, they have to get in the bath, they have to, it's late. And so they eventually do get in the shower or they do get in the bath and you make your way back to your bedroom. What do you say to yourself on the way there? There's another one. You're driving. Someone cuts you off. What do you do? Or you're at church and they sing that song in that particular way that you don't really care for. Or the pastor says something that maybe is not particularly wrong, but it's just not the way that you'd like it to be. And he kind of does that a lot. <laughs> what, what do you do in those moments? You watch the rival news station and they exasperate yet another story. What do you do? You go home for Thanksgiving and you're on your way home and you know that your family that you're going to be meeting with having that meal is going to kind of nitpick at some of your life decisions. What are you doing as you're driving home to that meal? Well, the answer to all of these in some way, shape, or form is probably going to be some level of grumbling or complaining. It's something that we are all too familiar with. In fact, a recent survey showed that 43% of Americans believe that Christians complain too much. That's up from uh, 34% just a couple years prior to that. And yet, 
grumbling or complaining or disputing, as we see in the text today, uh, we find our text is entirely off limits, according to Paul. Now, some people have difficulty believing in a global flood or a bodily resurrection or that Jonah could be in the belly of a fish for three days. But I think maybe they ought to be questioning that verse, right? Do all things without grumbling and complaining or disputing? And of course, here we are. I was thinking about this even myself. Here I am grumbling about the fact, the fact that it's in there, right? We just on it goes. And yet, try and take a moment from just take one moment and imagine a world looking at a community of people who are so full of thanks and gratitude and trust in the providence of God that they don't grumble and they don't dispute. Can you imagine if a community existed like that? What kind of witness it would be to the world? Well, we will have the opportunity to do that this morning. As we think about Philippians here, we're going to imagine a gospel-believing local church that shines by, their presence of, by the presence of their trust in God, their thankfulness to God, His activity in, in and amongst them, and the absence then of complaining and disputing. That's what we're going to see as we continue our work through the book of Philippians. We find ourselves in chapter 2, verse 14, where Paul says the following. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad. And rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So first thing I think we see from this passage, do not grumble at God's pleasure. Do not grumble at God's pleasure. I think that's what is happening there in verse 14. Do not grumble at God's pleasure. Paul has called the church in Philippi to complete his joy. Back up in chapter 2, verse 2. To complete his joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one another. Be a humble people that thinks of others before themselves. To have the mind of Christ, verse 5. And that mind of Christ was illustrated in verses 6 to 8 when he rehearses the gospel for them as a picture of that humble mind where Christ did not take his privileges and rights and use them, but instead he laid them aside for the good of others. The Father, we see, after rehearsing the gospel, down in verse 9, responds by making Christ's name above every name in verse 9. And then in verse 12, as we saw last week, we see our response as Christians to that gospel for God's good pleasure that he's working in us. And so the words that come next here, right, the ones I just read, verse 14, the words that come next are closely connected to what comes before them and closely connected to what comes after them. Do all things without grumbling or disputing is part of joyfully working out our salvation as God works in us for his good pleasure. So as we have seen with Paul's continued emphasis on humility and unity, it's evident Paul is trying to address some pride and arrogance that are happening here in this local church. And he does this, I think, in a way that's very instructive for us. It's instructive because of our temptation in addressing pride and arrogance. So as well as the complaining, I think, that is often done uh, in response to these sort of pride and arrogance that we have in ourselves. 
So the way that we often do it, right, is we sort of say when we get upset about something or don't like something, we just sort of say, stop it. Right, just cut it out. It's what most of our parents did to us when we were growing up, right? Clean your room. Why? Because I told you so. That's why. Clean your room. Right? And we know that that's a good way or maybe a way, maybe not a good way, but it's at least a way to get the room clean, right? But it's probably not the best way to encourage long-term obedience. And so Paul's command to not grumble or dispute is woven beautifully inside of a better story, a better community that shines as a light in the world. He helps us see not only how grumbling and disputing doesn't fit the gospel, he also helps us see how refraining from such a practice speaks a better word to a crooked and twisted world. See, a world that often grumbles and complains itself. See, the church, this is what Paul has been doing throughout this entire letter. The church is supposed to be mankind out in front of time. It's supposed to be a community that pictures the consummated kingdom of heaven here on earth. We're to be told, as the church, we are told, we are to be holy as God is holy. That means set apart as God is set apart. And by the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the redeemed have been redeemed by his love. We've been changed by his love. Therefore, we're set apart. We are to be sheep that are different from the wolves of the world. We are wheat that are set apart from the tares or the uh, weeds of the world. We are light that is shed apart or shining into the world of darkness. So in other words, the church community should look different. And to be clear, that doesn't mean that we should, you know, uh, wear strange clothing and build small communes unto ourselves. That's not what that means. But it does mean that in our life together as a church, we work together to play the symphony that the hearts of the world know is out there, but can't seem to find in a community anywhere else. And so if we sing the same tunes as the world... They won't see in us and be intoxicated by our love for one another and our life together because we begin to look just like them in their own grumbling and complaining. And so if we grumble and dispute, be argumentative like the world is, then we represent ourselves as no different from them. And we make ourselves not compelling. But friends, the reality is the church is compelling. Why? Because we are Christians, right? We are followers of Christ. And it was Christ who was falsely accused. The one that was mocked, that was bound, that was made fun of in front of the pagan Pilate. And when Pilate asked him about all of these charges, the book of Mark tells us that Jesus made no further answer. He was silent in the face of his accusations, even though those accusations were entirely false. And instead, Jesus chose to be silent in the face of those charges. He did not open his mouth. He was led away like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a result of that, Pilate stands there noticing that Christ is not responding to these false accusations and says, don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I can do? And yet, because he was silent in Mark chapter 15, verse 5, we find that Pilate is amazed at Jesus because of his silence in the face of these false accusations. And so likewise, the more silence we have with one another and in the face of the world, combined with more confidence and gratitude we have in God our Savior, the more the world will look at us and be amazed and give glory to our Heavenly Father. So that does not mean, though, to be clear, that does not mean that we should not critique the idolatry of the world 
or speak up when the truth of Christ is being trampled upon. We should and we must, because those are good words, helpful, life-giving words, words of truth, words of exhortation, words of admonishment and rebuke. Those are loving words, not words of grumbling or disputation. See, what Paul is talking about right here in this passage, and we've been seeing this on these, all these calls to humility, back up in verse 3, back up in verse 4, having the mind of Christ. It's illustrated in verses 6 to 8. What we're seeing here is Paul is talking about here individual preferences when they become more important than the unity of the body of Christ. See, godly rebukes, friends, godly rebukes turn to sinful grumblings when our personal opinions feel the need to be made corporate convictions. Godly rebukes turn to sinful grumblings when our personal opinions feel the need to be made corporate convictions. And I think what we often find in those moments when we do that is those personal opinions happen to also fit the way that things, things we think ought to be. Which I think explains a lot of our grumblings and disputations. We're going to find more about this in chapter 4, verse 2, when we see a bit of an argument happening inside the life of the church. Some kind of arrogance is happening, this fighting, infighting happening. And Paul is saying that this is going to cloud the witness if we don't get this right. And oftentimes, I think what I think we see is these personal opinions when they feel the need to become corporate opinions or corporate convictions, and they all happen to fit the way that we think they ought to be. Well, it explains a lot of our grumblings and disputations because we simply want our own way. That's what we want. And when we don't get it, we grumble or we become argumentative. And again, that's what that meaning of that word disputation is, sort of argumentative. You kind of are quick to sort of want to argue and struggle. And grumbling would seem to indicate a kind of bitterness of the soul. So in a world that is trying to affirm everything and everyone, we just don't like it when people or things don't bend to our own wishes and our own styles and things of the like. In other words, I think we do conform. We do, as Christians, I think we do conform to the patterns of the world more often than we would like to admit. So we reflect the individualism of the world in ways that I think that we oftentimes don't begin to recognize. But Paul here is reminding us of something better. He's just gone into this beautiful rehearsal of the gospel and talking about how God is working in us for his good pleasure. He's reminding us that while you may feel better about complaining or critiquing something or someone, in the end, such a mind is toxic. For not only your own individual soul, but also it's toxic for the church community. And Paul is addressing the local church. Remember that, beloved, when you look in the text, that those used there are plural. He's referencing the entire body, not just particular individuals. I think it's important to note this. Joey said this so well a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago. Rarely do churches split over theological preferences. Oftentimes we find them splitting over individual preferences. And that, Paul says in this passage, is entirely wrong. It's entirely wrong. Again, he says, do all things without, all things, note the emphasis, all things without grumbling, being bitter of soul or disputing. Do nothing from selfish ambition, Paul tells us back up in verse 3. Remember that? He says that in verse 3, and he says here again, here he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing or being argumentative or even complaining. Some translations would put it that way. Because grumbling and being argumentative are rooted oftentimes in individual preferences, not the collective joy of God's redemptive activity amongst his people. This is where that connection comes in of a better way. Back up in verse 13. Look at verse 13. Remember, that's coming right into verse 14. Paul is pulling straight from verse 13 right into verse 14, and he's motivating a better way. 
See, just back in verse 13, he instructs us why this grumbling is wrong. It's not just individual preferences that are at play. It's God that is working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so then grumbling and disputing opposes then God's pleasurable activity. This is what I mean when I use this language of not grumbling at God's pleasurable activity. See, grumbling says, I deserve better than this, God. It's that bitterness of heart. And being disputive is to question the governance of God in your life or in our life together. So in other words, if you were God, grumbling and disputing, if you were God, you change this or that in your life or in our life. And you think that it, by changing it that way, we or you would be better. Now, we would never come out and say it quite that distinctly. We probably haven't maybe even thought it out that far that that's what we're tra- trying to say, that we're trying to assault God's activity. But grumbling and complaining is a heart issue, and so therefore we are beginning to assault the work that God is doing in us and among us. Grumbling and disputing assaults God's pleasure of willing and working for His good pleasure. That's what we find in this passage. The presence of grumbling and disputing in our lives together shows a lack of trust in God's providential activity and a lack of joy in God's pleasure in us as He works in us. And it shows our heart's inclinations towards selfish ambition and conceit. Back up there in verse 3 again. And so there's the problem. There's the root of the problem. We grumble because we want our own way. We don't want God's way. So we'd rather will and work in ourselves for our own pleasure. We don't want to thankfully take life as God wills and works for us in His pleasure. And that's what He's doing though, Restoration Church. He's willing and working in us for His pleasure. We are often not so different, I think, from Adam and Eve who ate the fruit of the tree in order to be like God. We want to try to sort of govern things and talk about things and shape things the way that we would prefer them instead of how God is working in us. And Paul tells us there's a better way. There's a more beautiful way. Be mindful of God's pleasurable activity in the midst of us. God is a whole lot better at being God than you or I, right? He's pretty good at being God. We're not. But there's another reason to refrain from grumbling and disputing, I think, in this passage. Not only should we trust God's work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure, not our more individual preferences, but also we should stop grumbling and complaining or grumbling and disputing. Secondly, because we light up a world. We light up a darkened world. That's what we see there in verse 15. You, he says, light up a world. Take a look there again. That you may be blameless and children... Uh, innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you, there's that collective plural there to the local church, you, this church, this community, shine as lights in the world. Now that that there in verse 15, uh, it's there because he's about to tell us why more, why grumbling and complaining ought to be or disputing shouldn't happen. And he says there again that you, the church, may be may shine as lights in the world. Now, I think that comma there, you notice that comma after, verse, or after that word innocent there in verse 15? I think that comma, uh, comma there kind of clouds the meaning of what Paul's trying to do. That comma almost gives you an impression that if we can not grumble and complain enough, we might could earn our innocence and blamelessness. But that's not what's happening. That's not what Paul's trying to communicate. If you kind of just remove that comma there from the text, it communicates the point more uh, clearly. He's saying, Paul is saying in that passage in verse 15, he's saying that the absence of grumbling causes the church to be innocent children of God that are set apart from the guilty children of the world. 
In other words, when the world sort of makes accusations that they're no different than us or the the church is no different than the rest of the world because they're grumbling and complaining about things all the time too, that we should be blameless of those charges. We should be innocent of those charges. And so in so doing, we then shine as the glorious light to the world that God is better. We shouldn't be grumbling because we shouldn't be doing anything from selfish ambition or conceit. We should be aware that it is God who is at work in us. And we should be aware also that we are a light to the world. Remember those words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount? You are the salt of the earth. Salt there meaning flavorful. You are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, he said. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so Paul here doesn't do the equivalent of saying, clean up your room because I said so. When he says to not grumble or complain, he wants them to see you're children of light. You're a city on a hill. We shine as a better city than the city of the world. And note the words, we shine. He doesn't say if you don't grumble enough, then you might shine. He says we do shine. In a world of crooked sticks, God has made us straight by his grace. In a world of twisted vines, God has ordered us by his grace. See, we reflect his pleasure to the world by our expressing gratitude, not grumbling. Even and especially when things are hard or maybe when they're not quite the way that we would like for them to be. See, don't grumble, don't complain, don't dispute with one another. Represent a better city with a better master than sin, Satan, and self. Be innocent of the charges of the world as they make claims against us of being uh, unsatisfied. We, beloved, have been given passports to the heavenly city. We will be home soon enough. And so here we are sojourners. We are exiles. And since we are, we expect to be treated as our master was. Right? Didn't he tell us that we would be? God has graciously given us eyes to understand that this world is full of trouble. And so we're not surprised by trouble. We're not surprised by difficulty. We don't complain about it. We are thankful that God is work. And soon enough, as I said, we're going to be home. And so there's no need for grumbling. I think John Newton illustrates this point so well when he tells the story of a man that received a great inheritance. He shares the story of how this man receives this amazing inheritance that he didn't earn. And he has to go get in a carriage to travel to another city to go and get this inheritance. And he gets in the carriage to go get this amazing inheritance. And on the way there, not long before he arrives in the city, his carriage breaks down. And he gets out of the carriage. And as soon as he does, he has to walk the final mile or two in order to get his inheritance. And the way there, all the way there, he screams out, Oh, my carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. He complains the whole way there. Illustrating that ought not be the way that it should be for those of us who are in Christ. See, we are the community of people where upon the carriage breaking, we calmly get out, knowing God is at work even in the broken carriage. And secondly, we know that after the difficulty of those few miles as we travel, we will receive our inheritance of everlasting joy and rest. Therefore, we do not need to complain in those broken down carriage moments of our lives. And as we do, an empty and darkened world takes notice that we are full even in those moments. And they take notice 
And they begin to request and ask questions of this community and our hope in Christ. See, we express confidence in God's providence and our inheritance. Our light shines on the faces of those in darkness. And we speak of a better word, of a better city, of a better God than the one that we are trying to fashion for ourselves. See, our hearts as Christians are calm. They are full. They're not clanky. I think there's another man that illustrates this point for us well as this community that's shining his light to the world. Speaking a better word, full of grace, not full of grumbling. His name was Aristides. Aristides lived in uh, the second century, early to mid second century. Aristides was a Greek philosopher. Um, he had been converted to Christianity. You'll see why in just a moment. Uh, but he had the opportunity to, to explain the Christian faith and in particular the church community to the current Roman emperor named Hadrian. And so he has this opportunity. Now keep in mind, this is happening some 100 years or so after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so this is a new phenomenon. The church, the gospel is a new phenomenon to the world. And so Aristides comes and represents this church community that he's watching happen so that Hadrian, this Roman emperor, would understand this new thing, the church. And I want you to listen to how Aristides describes the community of the church. And I think what you're going to hear in those early days of the church is a community that is shining brightly with full hearts, no matter what may come and what difficulties may come. This is what he says. This is what he said to the Roman emperor Hadrian, describing the church. Now the Christians, O king, by going out about and seeking, have found truth. For they know and trust in God, the maker of heaven and earth, who has no fellow From him they receive those commandments which they engraved on their minds and which they observe in the hope and expectation of the world to come. They refuse to worship strange gods and they go their way in all humility and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them. They love one another. The widow's needs are not ignored and they rescue the orphan from the person who does him violence. He who has gives to him who has not unbegrudgingly and without boasting. When the Christians find a stranger, they bring him to their homes and they rejoice over him as a true brother. They do not call brothers those who are bound by blood ties alone, but those who are brethren after the Spirit and in God. When one of their poor passes away from the world, each provides for his burial according to his ability. And if they hear of any, any of their number who are imprisoned or, imp- or oppressed for the name of the Messiah, they all provide for his needs, and if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. If they find poverty in the midst and they do not have spare food, they fast for two or three days in order that the needy might be supplied with the necessities. They observe scrupulously in the commandments of their Messiah, living honestly and soberly as the Lord their God ordered them. And every morning and every hour, they praise and thank God for his goodness to them. And for their food and drink, they offer thanksgiving. Such, O king, is the commandment given to the Christians, and such is their conduct. Wow. That is light. Shining is light to the world. And we can understand, right? This is the command of Christ in John thirteen thirty five. They will know you're my disciples. How? By the way you love one another. Do not grumble or dispute or complain, beloved, for God is at working in you, working in us for his good pleasure. He has and will give us so much. Don't forget that the world is watching us. We shine as the people of 
thanks to God that the God of the universe saw fit to redeem us and bring us in to one another. So we ought to be blameless and innocent of the charges of ingratitude and bitterness and complaining and disputations. We have so much more. God has been so good to us. But there's even more that Paul goes on to say in verse 16. Take a look down there in verse 16. So we do not grumble because we are mindful of God. Is it work in us for willing and working in us for his pleasurable activity, not primarily our own interest? And secondly, we grumble. We do not grumble or dispute because we are aware that we are shining brightly as those who are full of hope. And thirdly, we hold fast to the word of life. We hold fast to the word of life. Take a look there in verse 16. He goes on, shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Now, what is that word of life? What does that mean? What's he talking about there? Well, we see that language in John 6, Acts 5. We see it some of the other places in the Scriptures. Clearly, this word that gives life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of salvation. Where the one that was rich became poor so that we that are poor might become rich. This wonderful news that offers life to we that are dead in our trespasses and sins. With a glorious, victorious Son of God set down His privileges as the Son of God took on the form of man and lived a sinless life, a beautiful, honest, glorious, righteous life. And because he did, he was able to make a sacrifice for the redeemed through his work on the cross. And to those that repent and believe and trust in him, there is this wonderful substitute, this great trade, or as Luther said so many years ago, the great exchange where the Son of God, with all of his righteousness, transfers his righteousness to the sinner through faith. And that sinner has transferred all of his sin to the Savior on the cross. That's good news. You want to know what good news is? That's good news. You saw that demonstrated before us with Cal uh, a moment ago. And on the third day, we see this life come through the resurrection, right? He didn't just die. He rose. And so there, there and we see the life that we have, eternal life. So we hold fast to the word of life. We hold fast to that gospel. So in the gospel, Christian, that's what Paul is calling the church in Philippi here too. In the gospel, we have all that we need. All that we need. All that's most important. Paul writes in Ephesians 1-3 that God has blessed us in Christ with what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The gospel is the place that we find life. And in that life, we have all that we need. We lack nothing. Therefore, we grumble for nothing. In the gospel, our identities are sealed we do not complain about losing face with our boss with our co-workers because christ will never leave us or forsake us we do not need to grumble about our spouses because our heavenly husband loves us perfectly we do not need to be argumentative with our friends because god has settled his argument with us in christ we do not need to even complain about bad drivers slow slow waiters Taxes, jury duty, imperfect churches. We don't complain about any of these things because we have the best news of all. We've been given the words of life. There's no better news than the gospel, the words of life. And in that, we have our day of redemption that we will get to enjoy forever. You know, I think about this when my children were born. On the day that my children were born, you, you could have given me a ticket or given me bad news. It wouldn't have mattered. I had the best news. And that's our life in Christ all day, every day. We've been given life in Christ Jesus once and for always, and it can never be taken away from us. 
We have been given everlasting life that has filled us with a love and a righteousness that, not, that doesn't leave us wanting or needing for anything. And so Paul's command there, holding fast, holding fast to that word. Don't let it go. Hold fast. Hold on to the gospel. Remember God is at work in us for his pleasure. Remember we are shining to a world that is in darkness. Remember that we lack nothing and the best is always out in front of us. We grumble, oh friends, and become argumentative, I think, when we forget those things or lose sight of them. We start nitpicking at songs and sermons, government and sports teams, our children and our jobs, our bosses and our friends, our deadlines and our responsibilities. And we join the chorus of a world that gripes and complains about all that it doesn't have, all the while forgetting that we've been given everything. Everything. Nothing do we lack. And so the reality is, church, we are always going to want something more than what you currently have. You're always going to want something more than you currently have. You're going to want to get rid of that debt so that you can support something more with your money. But here's the reality. As soon as you get rid of that debt, you're going to be complaining about the reality of how you're spending that money now that you have it. It's just the way it often goes. You're going to want to get more education so you can get a better job. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to get that better job and you're not going to like that job after two or three years and you're going to want another one. This is how it goes. You're going to want to find a better friend. You're going to want to find a better spouse. You're going to want to improve the spouse that you have. And as soon as that happens, some of those things will get answered. Then you're going to want something or someone else. It's just on and on it goes. It's a vicious cycle that the world wants you to stay in because the more you do, the more of their stuff you'll try and consume. And the more you do that, the more profitable they'll be and the more unhappy you will be. Friends, Satan has a vested interest in your dissatisfaction. Satan has a Vested interest in your being discontent. Only Christ, only Christ is interested in your rest and everlasting satisfaction. You cannot forget that. You've got to hold fast to that truth. He alone is the thing that can save you. He alone is the thing that can complete you and calm you. And rest, give you rest. You can find someone that understands that. When you find someone that understands that, that holds fast to this words, that holds fast to the gospel, you're going to find that when you find people that are resting in that gospel, you're going to find them to be the most contented person in the world. Why? Because their soul is at rest in Christ. Those that grumble and dispute the most are often the most unhappy and most discontented. They don't have or hold fast to the words of life. Not consistently enough anyway. The words of the gospel are oftentimes fleeting and maybe distant to them. The words of the gospel, they come to them like platitudes or sort of abstract notions that are unhelpful for the real struggle of their life. But the reality is, friend, that's not what we see in the Apostle Paul. For him, the gospel was everything and it was enough. It wasn't a platitude. It wasn't a religious observance. It wasn't something he just did on Sunday mornings or Tuesday nights at community group. It was his whole life. And because he had the gospel and was striving for the gospel, no matter what came in life, he was fine. Even when he was struggling, Paul knew that if he had the gospel and the promises of the gospel, he would be willing to lay everything down, everything down, throw everything aside. If he could own, possess, enjoy the promises of the gospel, just a few lines down. Take a look at this. Philippians 3, 8 to 11. This is exactly what he says. Chapter 3, verses 8 to 11. This is exactly what he says. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own uh, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He held fast to the words of life. It was everything for him. And because he had them, he was able to get through it all. The gospel, as I said, was not some platitude. It was his whole life. And he was willing to suffer for it. Be inconvenienced for it. Which is exactly where he goes next. Take a look down there in verse 16 to 18. He says, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, that would be the return of Christ, the day of judgment, so that in the day of Christ I may, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, that would be a sacrifice there. It's probably pulling off of Numbers 15. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad <laughs> and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. You see what Paul's saying there? He knows that if the Philippians believe, really believe, hold fast to the gospel, live the gospel, be confident, content in the gospel, he will see God really did work in them for his good pleasure. And he will really see that it worked in him for his good pleasure. And so their perseverance, the Philippian church's perseverance, and Paul's perseverance in the faith will evidence God's providential activity for his good pleasure. And Paul says that's enough. That's enough. Even if he has to be poured out to the point of death for their faith, the faith of the gospel, he's glad. He rejoices. And he tells them that they even should rejoice if he has to die. Now, why? Why would we ever rejoice at someone having to suffer, be inconvenienced, have difficulty? Because to live is Christ and die is gain. That's why. That's why Paul is instructing us that the gospel is the all-encompassing reality of our lives as Christians. It's not the ABCs of the faith. It's all that we have. And so since it is, since we can live and minister the gospel or die and be with Christ, no bad news can ever take away of the news of our union with him. So we don't need to grumble. We need to argue with one another. Now, to be clear here, friends, that doesn't mean that we all need to put on a bunch of plastic smiles and come to church. It's not what's happening here. Nor does it mean that we shouldn't struggle with God at some level to try and understand what's happening in our lives. I mean, we see clearly, right, in the book of Psalms, there's always, he's always struggling and wondering what's going on, calling out to God. We see Jesus himself struggled in the Garden of Gethsemane, struggling with what was going on. Paul even talks about this in uh, his letter to the Corinthians, about his struggle. But note what he says. He says that he was afflicted, but he wasn't driven to despair. He says that he was perplexed. That is, he didn't quite understand what was happening in moments. But he wasn't driven to despair. The afflicted, well, he was afflicted, not crushed. He was persecuted, but he wasn't forsaken. He was struck down, but he knew he wasn't destroyed. And he goes on to say, he says that these momentary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so, yes, we call out. Yes, we struggle. But we come back to these words of life because they are the governing words that take us home. We may be poured out like a drink offering for Christ. But even if we are, our defeat illustrates God's victory. And we rejoice. Right? 
Therefore, we always have room to rejoice. Always have room to rejoice. He's going to go on to say this. Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. And never then is there room for grumbling or disputing with one another. And so this then is the secret to the satisfied life. You find your hope. You find your joy. You find your identity. Not in who you were or in who you might be. Or not even in who we were as a church. Or who we might be as a church someday. No. We find our identity in who we are in Christ now. Today. All day. Every day. And the day that we look forward to when we get to spend eternity with Him in heaven. And so the more that we grow into that as a people, the more contentedness we will possess. And the more of that that we possess, the brighter our light will shine to a world of darkness that is desperately trying to find satisfaction in all the wrong places. So I can tell you, friends, that the most easily edified people are the most satisfied people. The most easily edified people are the most satisfied people. The people that are readily aware of God's activity, aware that they are lights, aware of the words of life, knowing the best is in front of them, they are the ones that are easiest to be around and to be edified. And in my personal life, I know this, I know no other example uh, that I think exudes this is my old pastor, Larry Trotter. You've heard him preach a couple times here. Such a wonderful man. They describe him like smooth jazz. Such a neat guy. He pastors a church called Northwake Church in the shadow of Southeastern Seminary. There right outside of Raleigh. And inside of Wake Forest, in the shadow of a big seminary, there are hundreds of arrogant theology nerds that read a book or two and think they have a lot of opinions that get them all right. And Larry pastors those kinds of folks. I was one of them. So was Joey. He even has people uh, in his church, members of his church, that have written commentaries on books of the Bible, authorities of ethics and counseling. He pastors a church like that, and yet he always loves them. He always loves them and, and cares for them. Even though he's even got these arrogant little MDiv students that are halfway through their MDiv, and they always want to throw their two cents in there about various things, Larry would still love them and be patient with them. He loves those people in a way that sometimes is difficult to understand even. He patiently listens to the opinions of that 25-year-old MDiv student, and he loves them in light of it. And he keeps going. You want to know why? Because he never got over the gospel. And he's been instructed by it as a pastor. Not just in what it is, but how a pastor ought to facilitate such a fold. So Larry, to be clear, Larry had plenty of trouble in his life. He still has plenty of trouble in his life. But if you went out and had coffee with Larry, he wouldn't be quick to complain or grumble about those things. That's not because he wasn't working through those things with various people. He occasionally would share with me the struggle of pastoral ministry and some of the issues he was having with his own family. He never wore plastic smiles. He was always honest, but he was always content because of the gospel. He learned to be content in all circumstances, whether he had a little or a lot. And he still today takes Mondays off to walk in the woods right next to his house to pray all day. That's what he does on Mondays. Just pray. No matter what book he read, no matter what sermon he heard or what conversation he had or what conference he attended, he was never really impressed. He was never really unimpressed. He could always find something to be thankful about and be content in. 
I can remember going and looking at the girl. Oh, wasn't that just amazing, Pastor Larry? That was just awesome. Like, that was good. It was helpful. I was really encouraged by it. You know, I mean, Larry, wasn't that just a terrible sermon, Larry? Oh, you know, he said some things I think we should consider. Ah, you know. <laughs> he was easily edified because he was and is so satisfied in the gospel. He holds fast to the words of life. He holds fast to the words of life. He told me and Joey something not long before we left to come up here and plant this church that I've never forgotten. And Joey and I still pull off of today. One that we didn't always take his advice well. And when we don't, we see it and feel it. He said to us, he said, make sure and spend at least a half day or a whole day in prayer and solitude at least once a month. Because if you don't, and this is what I always remember, because if you don't, you're going to get wobbly. You see, Larry knew that you can't fill up a water bottle under a spigot if the bottle is not full and still. It's got to be still. See, oftentimes our hearts aren't still. And so they don't get filled up with the words of life. And so we grumble and dispute. And so I want to encourage us to do that this week as a congregation. To sit still in the presence of the living God and take an inventory of His mercy. Not only to you individually, but to us as a church. Write down the ways that it is evident that He is working in you and in us to have desires and demonstrations of His kingdom. Sit still long enough to recount how the witness of this church or other churches or your lives individually have shined light into the lives of others. Remind yourself of those things. Rehearse the words of life for yourself. Rehearse the gospel. Be reminded of who or you are. Be reminded of what you have been saved from and be reminded of what you have been saved to. And remember that too, again, not just individually, but us as a church. What we have been saved from and what we have been saved to. And ask God to allow you to never get over the gospel. Especially when life gets hard or when life gets busy or when things are not quite the way you'd like them to be. See, to do that though, friend, you're going to need to slow down and sit still before the Lord. So do you find yourself grumbling and disputing a good bit? It's probably because you forgot these things and you're not living inside of them. Your heart is like that water bottle moving all around under the flow of the water of life. You're wobbly and you can't fill up instead of sitting still and being full. Stop moving around so much. Sit still and be full of Christ. Be thankful. He loves you. He loves this church. He gave his life for it. And he is working. He's working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we're working out that salvation with fear and trembling. And so we have plenty of cause for joy and very little cause if we ought to say no cause for complaint or grumbling in light of that. Rehearse those truths, beloved, this week. Be glad that even if we have to suffer this week, We do so holding fast to Christ as He holds fast to us. And we can rejoice because on the day of Christ's return, we will look around at each other and say it was all worth it. It was all worth it. We will spend an eternity in heaven with full hearts and glad and happy and contented hearts, enjoying the presence of Christ all day long. And we get a preview of that even now. And so do that this week, brothers and sisters. And if you're not a Christian and you want to know what it's like to be content resting in Christ, not having a heart that's clanky. Talk to somebody about the gospel. 
Ask them, what does he mean again by the words of life? That would be a good question. And whoever gets asked that question, joyfully respond with the good news of Jesus and all that he does to make us complete. Let's pray and ask him for help. Father, I pray for me personally and where appropriate, you would forgive us for our grumblings and our disputations. Forgive us, God, for losing sight of your pleasurable activity among us. Forgive us for forgetting that we're lights to a darkened world that's looking around at us. Forgive us for not holding fast to the words of life. And God, thank you for the gospel that cleanses all those sins and makes us whole. Just like that prodigal son, we can run home and be embraced by you, our Heavenly Father. Oh, we have so much to be thankful for. Forgive us where we're not mindful of those things. And may we be willing to lay our lives down if it means we attain the resurrection of the dead. And may we be mindful that because we have been given every gift in Christ Jesus, then we one day will make it home and enjoy our inheritance. And so may we no longer complain about our broken carriages, but be thankful that you're in the work, in the midst of that work. Help us towards that end. Thank you for your grace to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.